This is episode 19 of Soundproofist, and my name is Carrie. Today, we're going to hear from two soundscape artists who do field recordings. I wanted to know more about how they do their work and what tools they use. So in this episode, we'll talk with Charles Prevateri and Melia Roger about their recording process and what they've learned along the way. If you've ever thought about getting started with field recording, I hope you find this helpful. So let's start with Charles. My name is Charles Prevateri. I've been in radio since the late 80s and recording as a hobby since about the mid-90s. First started uh, recording in the field to acquire sounds for some of the news programming my friend was doing at a local radio station. After the story, I kind of just started recording at random, uh, you know, things like the environment, trains, rainstorms, walking around. Uh, these days, I've been recording a lot of binaural recordings for fun. And a recent favorite is definitely the hummingbirds, which uh, I will share. So what do you use in the field? I'm currently using a Zoom H6, and I also have an H4N. The H4N is great for like the simple stuff, and I use the uh, the XY microphone that comes with it um, for like simple stereo recordings, uh, things that I want to do quick and easy where I don't want to take a bunch of equipment. The H6 um, is really great. Uh, you have the ability to have four XLR inputs and then the option of taking off the XY mic at the top and adding another piece, which has just two more XLR inputs. So six XLR inputs, which is uh, fantastic when you're recording, you know, various things that you, uh, that you want multiple microphones for. As far as microphones are concerned that I use frequently, I have the QTC-1 from Earthworks, which is an extremely high-powered, very sensitive omnidirectional microphone. And then a Sennheiser 416 that I use for most of my mono recordings, uh, shotgun microphone, really incredible quality, um, and can take a lot of sound pressure, which is nice. I also just recently picked up a pair of Usi Pros for Binaural. Uh, the company that makes them is Lom, L-O-M. And they're super sensitive, really great quality build. And then with them, I also bought these um, these little wind socks go over and make it look like, uh, you know, cotton balls, big black cotton balls on them. But they do a really good job at uh, killing the wind. I use those mostly for binaural. Um, I put them on this foam wig head that I purchased to just create separation for the Usis. It works pretty well unless you're dealing with really loud sounds because the foam head is not very dense. So I have a cork head, wig head that I uh, also use. It's a little bit more wily to maneuver. So, um, so I usually stick with the foam head unless I really, really want a more accurate sound. I have a bunch of other microphones as well, but those are kind of the workhorses that I use. What software do you use afterwards? I use Pro Tools because uh, I've been using it since since the 90s. There's a lot of cheaper, simpler options for people like Audition, but I'm just so used to Pro Tools. I have it, so I use it. So what have you learned along the way from your mistakes? So, so many mistakes. Um, yeah, I, I learned that you should keep everything that you record and always record more than you think you'll need. It was a hard lesson uh, to learn with so many revisits to places or events that I didn't really want to revisit because I didn't get the exact sound that I wanted. Or, you know, there was something else happening during the sound that kind of ruined it, you know, and, and ruined what I was going for. What are some of the challenges that came up for you? 
Um, so like I just said, you know, sometimes when you're recording, you're listening really closely to what you're recording, but not necessarily listening close enough to what else is going on sound-wise around you. There are many times where I've kind of driven out in the middle of nowhere to get a sound, and then I, you know, I record it and feel like I've got some good recordings, and then I get it home and I hear airplanes in the background or cars or something else similar to that or, you know, voices. I guess try to focus on every single sound that you hear while you're setting up, you know, every artifact from cars and planes and voices. You know, it's, it's difficult to get it right the first time when you're, you know, too distracted and you don't want to end up recording things that you didn't want to record in the first place. So you've learned a lot through trial and error, sounds like. Uh, you know, I would say some of mine were frustration with cheaper equipment. You kind of learn fast and recording becomes a bit of an art form. So you always want the best tools to create the best art. There's a limit. It's really easy to kind of get caught up in having the best of the best and, and trying to get, you know, a better piece of equipment for more money when you don't necessarily need it. I would focus instead of on your equipment, focus on getting the best sounds. And then if you come across a sound that you really are happy with, but you weren't happy with the quality, then maybe start cataloging those. And if you do eventually graduate to a, a more expensive piece of equipment, you can go back and record that sound again. What's the most amazing sound you've recorded in the field? You know, there's a lot, and they're all kind of different. The sounds that I like the most are kind of unique sounds, uh, things that you get that no one will ever get because it's kind of a, a moment of time, moment of history. I did a protest while I was in Costa Rica. That was just incredible. I had a lot of music and different things going on. But, you know, I also like recording the frogs, you know, during the mating season. And uh, and I've been recording hummingbirds lately, which is <laughs> definitely the thing that I've enjoyed most. I also like recording ambient soundscapes. Sometimes they can really be soothing to just sit back and listen to a soundscape from wherever. Um, I frequently turn on the rain soundscapes that I've created in the past in various locations, they really kind of put you someplace. Water tends to be something that I really enjoy recording. Ocean, uh, rivers, uh, even little streams, little trickling of water, that they can be really, really interesting. And sometimes when I'm just reading, I'll throw something like that on instead of music. How do you share your work with others? I typically upload to SoundCloud and contribute to a lot of different sound maps there's so many of them. Uh, they've especially exploded during COVID. Yeah. My SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash P-R-E-V-I-T-I-R-E, -E, which is my last name. And there you can hear a lot of ambient soundscapes. Also, lots of different hummingbird sounds and, uh, and the frogs, I think, are on there as well. I actually took one of the hummingbird sounds. I think it was like, like 10 seconds of audio. And did something interesting with that. I was trying to pitch the sound to see how it would sound different, especially the beating of the wings, which is what I was looking for when I started recording the hummingbirds. And I took it and I, I just took the original and then slowed it down by half and put it next to it and then slowed that down by half and put it next to it. And so I essentially I came down to a 16th of the same 10 seconds of audio, which was close to like five minutes long. Just that 10 seconds audio stretched, stretched way out. And I have that on there as well. And, and uh, some friends have said that's one of the their more favorite things to listen to. 
So why don't we listen to a sample? And so the audio I'm sharing is a bit of the hummingbirds, the aforementioned hummingbirds that uh, I've been having so much fun recording. I appreciate you letting me participate. And now, introducing Melia Roger. My name is Melia. I'm 24. I come from France, but I'm now based in Zurich in Switzerland. And I've just came out of the cinema school where I was in the sound department. So I just finished two years ago. And I've been working in different areas, trying to find my way, because actually field recording is is just so broad that you can work either for radio, for cinema, for sound libraries, for so many different fields, also connected with environmental questions and stuff. So I just tried different topics, <laughs> different areas to find the right place for me that match with my values and my kind of way I want to live. So... I've been working just for six months for a sound library called Tonstrom. I don't know if you know it, uh, Carrie, but they are based in Germany and they are producing a lot of sound effects. And at the time, because I come from music, I studied piano and composition in the conservatoire for quite a long time. I really liked performing the sound. So also being outside and looking for new textures and objects and movements in order to maybe use them into films or video games or composition. But I was really excited about performing with uh, objects and looking for those sonic textures. So yeah, with them, I was also recording with like more field recording, what we call field recording to have uh, wind and background sound and more homogeneous layers that we can use yeah, for sound design. You know, when you have the background of a city, you want to have maybe like crowds, the wind, the different cars, and like just uh, this homogeneous layer. And then you add all the different detail somehow. So I was looking for those sound with, you know, this 5.0 rig. So some quite heavy equipment with me. And this really... I was just formatted somehow, you know, to look for sound that will be usable for movies. So it means that like, if you want to record a, like a street atmosphere, you don't want to have people walking too close or you don't want to have too much detailed sound, for example. Because after, if you put them into a picture and you hear a car so close to you, but you don't see it, then it, it feels like a ghost. So. Huh. It's always puts you in a place where you are looking for sound that can be used for different layers. And this was great, like as a first professional experience, but it was also putting me away sometimes for recording more spontaneously. 
Like I was forbidding myself to record some sounds because I was like, yeah, but it won't be usable for a movie. So, I mean, why bother? And <laughs> I guess now also being more connected to field recordings, like I'm more in a network where I meet other people having this practice and having other perspective. It's way more easier and flexible to record sound that also just maybe for me or as memories or or that will be used without picture as radio uh, experimentation or sound installation or even be more flexible on the type of mic I will use because the sounds are not captured to be sold. So it's, a, it's also a different maybe... It's okay to have less quality if you are more flexible. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Yeah, well, if you're being spontaneous, you don't have the time to set everything up and get it exactly perfect, I guess. Maybe set up all that equipment to get something that you didn't know was coming. I suppose you could have a happy accident or... That leads me to the question of what type of audio gear do you use in the field? And it sounds like it varies depending on whether you're working on something intentionally or whether you were capturing a soundscape. So what kind? So I just brought myself <laughs> a new recorder, like from sound device, like the second version of the Mix Pre 10. So I have uh, 10 inputs because I was like when I was with Tonstrom and when we are recording at least five channel for for a soundscape, you know, like with this rig, I'm always thinking, hey, we could have also maybe more or thinking of a, a 7.0.2 when you think of Atmos, like Dolby Atmos atmosphere. So I wanted to have something very practical to just bring with me, but also have a lot of inputs so I can also plug maybe contact mics and a geophone and a whatever different mic into it. But I have to say that right now, for example, I'm in holiday and yeah, I didn't bring with me the Mixpray 10 because it's also, it's pretty heavy <laughs> somehow. I mean, not compared to the the old sound devices from like 10 years ago, it's way much lighter and the, the prices are also more accessible. But now I, with me, I have a small Tascam, like the DRR05, uh, and I also have a small Zoom. But I'm, I mean, like the preamp for me are, are not so, I mean, compared to the sound divider, they are a bit disappointing, which is normal. <laughs> but they are so much practical. Like I can just put the recorder with uh, some small microphone into a tree and I can just leave it there or... I can bring it uh, with me in my backpack and when I hear something, I can just take it out and it's way more spontaneous. So it's another use than having expensive gear with a lot of microphone and rig and all those microphone arrays and, and whatever. So it really depends on the setup. And as you said, also, which intention do you want to give to your recording? If you are looking for a sound that you already know it will happen in this city or in this place and you are looking for it, like waiting that it happens, then you already know if you want to have a large stereo image or something, if it's a voice that you do an interview, it will be something more mono. So you only have one microphone. If you want to uh, record something that you know it will happen in, in very high frequency, you will record at a different sample rate uh, than 
if you are recording something that it, it's already in the human auditory range. So you also need the recorder that can go higher in the in the sample rate. So makes sense. And you plan that in advance, or if you're suddenly hearing a sound and you think, "Oh, I need to change the rate right now," like if some unexpected sound happens when you're there and you weren't planning on that, can you easily change the sample rate spontaneously? Well, actually, no. You're obliged to cut your recording to change it, but. I guess if you already plan to use the texture to slow down the recording, then I guess it's, uh, yeah, you have to stop and change and restart and you hope to hear the, the sound again. So yeah, it seems like anyone who's into sound usually has more than one device. It's just, in fact, it becomes sort of an addiction to get something for this occasion or something for that occasion or see if there's something that's a little better than what you had before. Yeah, and also trying out, I mean, I tried to build my own hydrophones as well with a friend, like just trying out to get new like ways to get unhearable sound, like uh, yeah, inside the water or if you can get also electromagnetic microphone to get the sound of your computer, like inside electronics or the sound of the Wi-Fi, like uh, it can open a totally different world to you if you use those specific microphone. It's the same when you use contact mics, like you can get so unexpected texture that uh, you wouldn't get with your normal ears. Interesting. And you you said you were making these yourself? I mean, there are different techniques, but uh, I just tried with a contact mic that I put into a, like a, a chair, <laughs> like a small plastic button somehow, like uh, to capture it. And then I filled it up with uh, hot glue. So it's uh, protected from the water. And uh and it's working pretty well somehow, but it's, of course, it's less sensitive than a, like a scientific hydrophone, like the one of uh, Aquarian and stuff that you, that you can use for scientific measurements. It's more to get the water movement and stuff, but uh, we are with, uh, I'm not doing this by myself. I, I, I mean, it's always nice to do this with friends that are also passionate. So I tried I mean, we try to record also some underwater insect, and it, it works pretty well. That sounds amazing and really fun uh, to build it yourself. And then you also maybe feel like, well, you know, if something goes wrong, now I know how to make another one. Yeah, and you can do uh, also multi-channel underwater recording. So you can have like a four-channel sound installation based on four different hydrophones, for example, that you place in different locations and that are synchronized also. And also the microphones, I'm sure you have a bunch of different microphones that you bring with you or just use the built-in microphone if you're using like a Zoom or something like that. So I just bought this uh, pair of, um, you know, this label called uh, LOM, L-O-M. Oh yeah, I've heard of them. I think you can also get some nice microphone on Mic Booster. You know this website uh, where you can have those uh, Primo capsule that it's just like some omni microphone. I mean, there are different directivities, but you can build yourself some very tiny capsule that have a very low noise background somehow. What is this website? Mic Booster. So M-I-C-B-O-O-S-T-E-R. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, there is so many tutorials for uh, do-it-yourself special microphones or even, yeah, or even stereo pair microphone. It's very practical and accessible for like cheap prices. That is very, very cool. Thanks for that. So after you get a recording, then what? What software are you using? And So... Because, I mean, I come from cinema, so I, I'm kind of uh, used to Pro Tools uh, because this is the standard that we use in movies. So I have to say that I continue working with that because I'm so, I mean, I'm fast and I know the software. So, and I mean, yeah, for me, it's just easier. But I've also sometimes used Reaper when I have to use it. I mean, I use it most of the time for playing sound like uh, when I do a sound installation and I know it will stay for like uh, a month in a place then I will use Reaper because it's very reliable so I, I use that and just to clean the sound etc I use uh, Isotope uh, yeah and in order to sort uh, my sound and to have the right metadata and names and right uh, keywords so I can find them, I use SoundMiner, which is a very practical software and yeah, to, to add metadata and whatever information you want to give to a sound file. So it's very practical. It's kind of the <laughs> not free version of Wave Agent. I don't know if you know this software from a sound device. It's a software where you can just yeah rename everything and give a description. So when you are looking, like for example, when you work for a movie and you need like a tiny river, for example, and if you just type tiny river, maybe you will have tons of them. And if you don't want to listen to all of them, you can just have more keywords so you can add like a different adjectives so your research becomes finer and uh, and have the right sound for your sound editing. But I guess this is more from the cinema perspective. And when I was also, for example, when I was working for Tonstrom, it was always, I mean, I worked two months on this um, switch library. So I, we recorded a lot of different buttons, for example like uh, light buttons, uh, different, uh, yeah, <laughs> different size, different shapes, different movement, like turning, just pressing, um, different location. And we had to do all the metadata of those different buttons. And I mean, they are all buttons, but you have to name them. I mean, each sound has its own adjective if it's something small or plastic or press or whatever you have to name this so precise that anyone can find the right sound by typing those words and i don't know if you are aware of this now but there is this new category system it's called the universal category system and it's a it's kind of a universal way to name the sound so you have different categories that you have to just respect in the sense that uh, if you have an urban sound you will have to name them you will have to name all your sound depending on this category and you can find all of this online and it's very easy to understand and to set up the names of your sound like this so everyone if you are sharing sounds with other people they can easily find your sounds into their library it's something i hadn't really thought about before and it's really interesting because i tend to 
I should be probably doing something like this too. Many of us should be. I tend to just use the Mac operating system because, you know, I use a Mac and uh, search with the Mac operating system, but I don't change the metadata. I always like create the names of the files and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, if it's just for yourself, there is no need to bother (laughs) because it's also a lot of work to clean your sound and to make them kind of uh, readable by anyone. I mean, I try to do it. When you work for a library that are selling sound, you have to do it because, I mean, that's the way people are working. Otherwise, you don't find the sounds that you are creating. Yeah, your sounds are not found into the libraries. So I would say it's something very important. But if it's just for yourself, then it's just for yourself. And for example, I mean, I have many friends in France that are working in French, but if you are sharing sounds like with the international network, then everything has to be in English. And then like now in Switzerland, I'm working in German. And so when you are looking for different sound, you're also trying the different languages. So you are sure that maybe in one of the libraries, you will find the, the perfect sound. Between French and German, you're not going to probably, there's not very many words that are going to be similar at all. So no. No, but the standard is is English, yeah. Kind of almost like a style guide. You can find it on the website. It was set up, I mean, this last year by uh, Timothy Nelson from the Skywalker Sound Studio. And they are just explaining how to name all your sound libraries by those categories. And they really attend to have a universal category, allow everyone to have the same keywords for naming the sounds and then you can add every any personal detail in the metadata for example if like the location or also you're adding which mic you were using at which distance if you have different more emotional patterns that you want to add like something like a slamming door, you know, and you were angry, you can put a harsh, slamming, wooden door, angry, for example. You can add also some personal stuff, but the naming would be then, uh, oh, not so for me, it's also very new to fill the names of my sound file into this category system, but you will have like this object, door, wood, hard, slam, for example. And then you add all the description metadata with more detail thing. I don't know if there was a small metal rattle on the door. Maybe you also add it in the metadata, but it doesn't define exactly the object. It's more the detail uh, that you add in the metadata. Wow, what a great system, though. I mean, I'm so glad somebody came up with that. And it probably came from a lot of frustration of people just not being able to share things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, now when I'm looking in my browser, I have access to like a Google Doc with the category and the subcategory lists. So now if I'm reading to you, like there is the category air, aircraft, alarms, ambience, animal, beeps, bells, birds, boats, bullets, cartoon. And then you have all the subcategories. So for example, if I take the category ceramics, there is so like a mix. There is break, crash, debris, friction, impact, movement, tunnel. And then you have the category ID uh, that you have to uh, use to name your sound. So it's just uh, like an acronym. Can we say that? Acronym, yes, exactly. So so the sound is uh, 
being attached to this category? I think maybe people are becoming more aware now of the, some of the psychological impacts of sound and especially after the pandemic and how where it, it got so quiet for a while and how it changed people's perspective because suddenly they notice the birds, you know, and they never heard the birds before or you really notice the sound of cars because for a while there were no cars and then when the cars came back you really noticed them again and that sort of thing and you know, I don't think people typically think about sound if they're not in the field because you don't notice it it's just around you all the time. Yeah, it's very unconscious. Yeah, it is. It is. And yet it, in, it impacts you because it might stress you, it might relax you, and you're not really thinking about what is it that's making you feel this way? And some of it might be the sound, you know. I know it's certainly true for me. Yeah, I mean, it really touches your emotions. I mean, of course. And uh, for the ones that are trained, it's something that you can bring to consciousness. I mean, you are conscious that it's the sound which is triggering this emotion. But I mean, for most of people, it's something unconscious. And I mean, that's why for me, it's so interesting to work on movies because you really impact the spectator perception of the film or the character in the story when you're changing the sound of the footsteps or uh, how hard someone will smash something like or just entering like the sound of the door in a film tells so much about a character and no one will notice that oh yeah this was a great sound of door but you will notice that uh, this person is angry he's or she's entering a, a space which is kind of uh, I don't know either something a place very safe or a place where the person might not be safe because the sound of the door is, you, you can hear it's a shitty, woody door, which is not uh, strong enough to maintain security. I don't know, like it, it really works on this unconscious level of understanding of a situation or the way we perceive acoustics as well. I mean, I was explaining the other day to my grandma, what is the reverb? And I was telling her, but you, your brains know that Right now, if you close your eyes, we are in the kitchen because there is your voice reflecting on the walls and you can hear it's ceramic. But if we are in the living room, maybe it's wood walls, so you will hear it. And it's so on an unconscious level. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. If the sound is wrong, you would think, yeah, this isn't seeming authentic to me or... Yeah, of that emotion that you might feel of danger. Or as you mentioned earlier, if you capture a sound, but the sound of the car is too close, it's confusing because your brain knows what that should sound like. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. That's a great background to have of that level of detail because it's so important to support the story. It's part of the story. Yeah, totally. And I mean, also... When you're analyzing, we didn't speak about soundscape yet, but I think when you also work in movies and you always have to create, you know, I mean, depending on the film, of course, but you always have to create kind of the soundscape that you imagine on the scene because, yeah, you have to bring the wind, you have to bring the cars, you have to bring every background sound that were not here on set uh, because, yeah, because it's on set and you are not here to take the background, but like the voices and the dialogue. So you have to recreate everything. And so you're obliged to make this work outside in the fields 
of listening to every <laughs> every places you go to notice the little detail and by layers, you know, what is the closest sound I hear, what is the further sound I, I'm listening to, to be able to rebuild those layers after in, in post-production. And it's very interesting to do this work. I mean, back in the studio to see how it changed your perspective on the scene. If you put like uh, the rain louder or if you put the cars louder, I mean, it really changed your unconscious perspective of, of, uh, yeah, of a location. It's, it's super powerful. Yeah, it really is. One of the things I was wondering about also is what have you learned along the way from mistakes or from when you got started? I remember one mistake I was so ashamed of. I, I was recording Impulse Response in the forest and I was afraid of saturation because we were recording the Impulse Response with, you know, this gun that is uh, shooting this uh, blank bullet. Mm -hmm. And so I put the gain very low and I was working with a sound device. It was a 788. And this button, when you put it a very low gain, it kind of uh, make the track off and I didn't record anything. And I mean, you know, it costs so much <laughs> to have those. I mean, we recorded five directions. So it was like five bullets recording. And then I was just like, oh my God, no. And the file was empty. Oh and my God. I was so ashamed <laughs> because, and so I had to go back on the location and we had to do it again. And it was, it was the first time for me that I was recording gunshot. So I didn't know. Well, maybe you thought that it would be overwhelmingly loud and. Yeah, exactly. I was afraid of that. That's why I put the gain so low. I mean, other mistake that you do at the beginning. I mean, it's just also not having the right wind protection, not having the right battery, not having the right SD card with enough power, the wrong boom pole that you hear every manipulation sound or, or you start recording and then you realize it's not the right place, but you don't have enough time to change the microphone. So you're still doing it, but actually it's okay to just have the beginning maybe not good, but the rest of, of your recording better if you're changing in the middle of the recording the place of the microphone because you know otherwise it won't be uh, usable. Yep, exactly. Uh, just as you were saying that, I was like adjusting the gain a little bit. Yeah, those are all learning experiences. I mean, you really don't learn sometimes unless you make a mistake and then you learn a lesson that sticks with you and yeah, I mean, especially in the field, like uh, you can really learn by just being out there and doing some recordings and going back in the studio and listening and and make comparisons. I mean, you know, in cinema school, like we had so much theory and I had the impression that I didn't learn anything. I mean, of course, you learn how to use the machines and how it's made inside so when you are outside, you know how to react when there is a problem and you know kind of uh, how to do it yourself, you know. But I mean, it's really while being outside that you you just try out and you also might be surprised all the sound that you are recording and that's the beauty of it. I mean, really, like the not expected, not expected sounds that comes. But you say that even though the theory seemed not practical at the time it turned out that the theory in practice really did help you once you got out in the field 
yeah, I mean, for example, to to recall impulse response. So, you know, when you get the acoustic of a specific location, I mean, to have notions of acoustic, of course, it helps just to understand how the sound is reflecting, but it can be way much more simplified. I mean, in the school I went in France, it's, a, it's called Louis Lumière. You know, the Lumière Brothers. I mean, it's a very, very old school and... And by the way, we were only two girls <laughs> in this class <laughs> uh, out of uh, 16 students, which is somehow not so bad because sometimes there is only one. I mean, yeah, it helps. But I was always, I mean, I was always wanting to go outside or to do my own stuff. And now I went, for example, when I need someone really, really knowing the technical stuff, I'm just asking to, to my colleagues. And I have friends who are, you know, creating plugins, inventing new microphones and stuff. And this is really not what I'm passionate about. I just like to be, <laughs> to be outside and listening. So it's really different. It's two different words, totally. It is. Well, yeah, there's the hardware and the technology. And then there's, it sounds like you're into the art. What do you think is the most amazing sound you've ever recorded? I don't know, but... Uh, Last lockdown, um, I was super surprised. I was doing some gardening and I suddenly just heard to this rambling, uh, low, <laughs> crunchy sound. And it was actually, you know, in the uh, horse dung, there was some uh, little insect just eating the sheet of the, of the horse. And this was just amazing sound i mean i i never i was able to hear it yeah it was so loud and so i just uh used like my small task cam and yeah i could just uh, record it like this so this was for me like the most amazing <laughs> sound of the lockdown because it was really loud and you know this proof of uh living in the soil which was uh, very surprising that's right. I think you have that on, on your SoundCloud account also, that recording, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And we can include a few seconds of it here so people can hear that amazing sound. I mean, I was kind of already aware of this because in Zurich, I'm starting to assisting a researcher who is specialized into soil sounds. So more on this, you know, acoustic ecology framework. So linking environmental issues and field recordings. So I was already super aware of this uh, inside process, but I mean, the way he's recording sound with very contact mics, you know, that goes underground and putting like amplifying those sounds like a hundred times. Um, I mean, this was totally different. I was listening to those little bugs just with my ears. And this was new because it was it was not um, it was very surprising that they were so loud. So one more question I had was how you share your work with others. And it sounds like we covered some of that, but not really, because we were talking about the sound libraries. But in general, yeah, how how do you share your work? Now I'm part of this Slack, of this field recording, crowdsource, I mean, with the all 
universal category system, but this is very new for me. But there is a lot of people on this Slack, you know, the platform? Yeah. Slack. And so I'm connecting with more through the platform and also participating to some uh, common sound libraries. So where people can, you know, like they are creating calls. So for example, the next call is water and ice. So everyone has to send uh, five files of water and ice sounds. So I was recording uh, like some with uh, snow and river and different little water sound, whatever. And then you share those files and you get in exchange the library of everyone sharing this. And for example, the last one was over 500 gigabytes of uh, different uh, parts of the words of the world with a background sound of your home. So it can be a nice way to get in contact or just hear to the community <laughs> work. And otherwise, I just share my sound on SoundCloud and I have a website and I also use Instagram and to post some of my recording setup or Instagram. Yeah. And it's actually nice. Like I've been in touch with different sound artists when I was traveling, just contacting them on Instagram. And I mean, people are answering. <laughs> it's, it's really nice. I would say actually that uh, when I was meeting for the first time, people doing the stuff that I was doing, it was really liberating somehow just to realize that you are not a freak you know <laughs> that there is there is really a community and it's it's kind of a small family it's really important to have this because it's also you share so much knowledge and experience and yeah and different um, stories and recording uh, tips and also just recording outside with others was also some, something great because otherwise you're so lonely. I'd like to thank Charles and Melia for joining me today on Soundproofist. If you're interested in learning more about their work or if you want to visit the sites we talked about, I'll put some links on the Soundproofist site. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. There's more episodes coming this year.